This forum is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here and a proud member, and it is great to have you with us on June 8th here. Senator Robert F. Kennedy's mindless menace of violence speech delivered at the City Club of Cleveland on April 5th, 1968, is probably one of the greatest speeches of the 20th century. Since that time, the City Club has provided a venue for thousands of speeches, uh, but none other is so widely remembered, so widely referenced, so quoted or shared. Just about every time another violence, act of violence erupts in and captures the nation's attention, we're reminded of that speech. And in recent years, it's likely you've seen it shared on social media. At the time of that speech, during the civil rights movement, history, race, and politics were converging in ways that indelibly changed America. And at the center of it at all was Senator Robert F. Kennedy. A new book by civil rights historian, Dr. Patricia Sullivan, places Senator Kennedy at the center of the movement for racial justice. And it shows how many of today's issues can be traced back to that pivotal moment. The book is called Justice Rising, Robert Kennedy's America in Black and White, and it's available beginning today. We're honored to have Dr. Sullivan with us to kick off her book tour. She is the William Arthur Ferry Professor of History at the University of South Carolina, where she specializes in modern United States history with an emphasis on African-American history, race relations, and the history of the civil rights movement. She'll be interviewed, this is very special, she'll be interviewed by Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, the oldest child of Ethel and Robert F. Kennedy and the former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Just text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, please tweet your question at the City Club and we will work it into the program. And now, Ladies and gentlemen, friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming Dr. Patricia Sullivan and Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Welcome both of you. Thank you for being here. Uh, at the City Club, at least in spirit, and I'm glad that you could remember my father's speech in 1968. And it's great to be here with Pat, who's written a, just a fabulous book. I haven't read it all but I started it and I learned something new about my father on almost every page. I love your book, Pat. It's just fascinating and it's so well-written. I know it's taken you nine, nine years to work on it and your research is t impeccable, really fabulous. Um, you say in the book that when you started writing this book, you didn't intend to write about, about my father. Um, what made you change your mind? Um, well, first, let me thank you, Kathleen. And your response to the book is the most gratifying I could I could ask for. Um, yeah, it's it was really a surprise that I ended up writing a book with Robert Kennedy at the center. Um, as Dan mentioned, my work has been on African American history, and really looking at at back to the Civil War Reconstruction era when Emancipation, Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendment, guaranteeing citizenship and securing freedom. Uh, for African Americans, and sort of what what happens in the decades that follow, and you know most people know. I mean, the Southern states passed these laws establishing a racial caste system. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld them. The nation tolerated or actually endorsed them. So, um, but African Americans continued to struggle to realize their rights that were guaranteed by the Constitution. Um, and so that there's sort of a long black freedom struggle that goes before this reconstruction, but really they were guaranteed citizenship rights. Uh, my book before this one was on the NAACP and looking at it from its founding in 1910 up until 1960. And the NAACP is an extraordinary organization that begins to channel this struggle um, to challenge you know, Jim Crow, help people resist and challenge, and also is there as black migration begins to reshape America's racial landscape, as people are moving to cities in the North and the West, and um, segregation steadily becomes more entrenched in, in those places. So this sort of nationalizing of um, racial segregation and discrimination in, in real ways. 
So when I finished that book, I thought, I want to look at the 1960s, take a fresh look in this sort of national framework. You know, I mean, the Southern movement really explodes and captures attention. Um, but, you know, there are challenges around the country. And, um, and the decade, you know, starts with the sit-ins. Most people know that 1960, um, which really ignites youth protests and really pushes over the sort of apathy of the Cold War era. We get the civil rights legislation of 64 and 65. And then, you know, this explosion in urban areas, urban uprisings, the aggressive policing that we are still dealing with today. So that was the kind of, kind of story that got outside of civil rights, black power, and looked at this dynamic of racial change and transformation and crisis in the 60s. And as I was reading, Robert Kennedy popped up several times. And uh, it was sort of curious because, I, I mean, I knew general biographical information, but I really didn't know about his connection. And as I read more and sort of looked at him in the context of, again, this racial dynamic of the 60s, he's in the center of it, as Dan said in the beginning. So that was it. I mean, he was sort of my way in and the way he moves through the decade and how he evolves really and interacts with all of these forces for, for racial change uh, really provided me with, and I, the book does, a fresh look uh, of the 60s and their relevance to today, particularly how the, the decade ends. So that's sort of a, a long answer, but it really was a great find. And I learned so much in, in working on this book and working with your father, leading me through this decade. Thank you. Um, well, what, what did you learn about my father that surprised you that we didn't know or that we'd forgotten? So much. I mean, you know, we think we know, all of us Americans. I mean, the, the Kennedys, you know, JFK and, and your father are icons in our history. And they're almost frozen in our history. <laughs> and as I started to ask different kinds of questions and look at Robert Kennedy in this context of racial struggle, civil rights activism, white resistance in the South, in the North, um, you know, I, I just saw that he was someone, you know, people say he changed. And I don't, uh, my research doesn't uh, suggest that he grew. You know, he, in the 1960 with the campaign that he ran for uh, your uncle, John F. Kennedy, uh, he was exposed. They both were exposed to conditions around the country. And of course, the sit-ins really uh, commanded attention. Um, and by the time he comes into office, uh, you know, he, well, he, even before then, that there was something wrong. It was wrong. Segregation was wrong. Racial discrimination was wrong. And he really, you know, gave all of his energy in the Justice Department to begin to use the tools of the federal government to enforce the Brown ruling and voting rights. Um, but he quickly came to see that um, it was, the problem was much deeper, much more complex. And one of the things that really struck me is that in 1961, in the spring, so just several months after he became attorney general, uh, he went to New York and he had an interview at the CBS building and he walked up to East Harlem where someone had set up a meeting for him, private meeting, no publicity, with several um, gang members. And he talked with these young men about their lives, about their experiences. And as he said later, that was um, that no single set of experience brought home to him the need for a fresh approach to law enforcement in poor underserved communities. So he began developing a federal program uh, which really became the model for community action, where communities applied for grants to create recreational facilities, job training programs, supplement education. So that was uh, completely new to me and really is a thread that I, fo I follow throughout the book as the cities become more of a center of um, racial conflict. Um, and one other thing I add, and you and I have talked about this that I wasn't aware of, is that you know, I look at his background, um, you know, his early life to try to understand what made him responsive to, um, you know, what the civil rights movement brought to the fore and, and really demanded attention. And there are interesting things about his, his background. I mean, his, his compassion, his questioning spirit, and, and an early illustration of this and a willing to, willingness to go against the grain. Uh, when he was a law student at the University of Virginia, he was the head of a legal, the legal forum, and he invited Ralph Bunch, the great African-American 
political scientist and at that time a diplomat to the UN and first African-American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. He invited him to UVA uh, and Bunch said he would only come uh, if there was no segregation. And at that point in 1951, that was the law in Virginia, public meetings had to be segregated. Uh, your father thought, well, Ralph Bunch, we, we need to have him here and there shouldn't be segregation. I mean, we just fought, fought a war, World War II. There have been several Supreme Court decisions around segregation in higher education. So he petitioned the president, mobilized some support among the faculty and was able to get that, um, have a non-segregated meeting. Uh, and from my research, uh, it is the first non-segregated public meeting on the campus of the University of Virginia you know, of its size. I mean, 1,500 people came to hear Ralph Bunch and a third of them were African-American. So that was sort of a glimmer of, of what we would find as he again moves into a position where these issues are front and center and he is in a position uh, to do something about it. I, you said it's the first uh, non-segregated meeting of the UVA, but it might've been the first non-segregated meeting in all of Virginia. You know, it really could be. I mean, a public meeting, because again, yeah. it was it was again. So and people just, you know, I think what people forget, and again, what makes your father so interesting is that all, you know, Americans grew up in a rigidly segregated society in all parts of the country. It was the norm. It was taken for granted. It's hard for us to imagine that, but really, if you put, and it, you know, so that was that. And, uh, and that he, and, and Ralph Bunch became, as you know, great friends with your parents. And he just, he, he said to his biography, he so respected Robert Kennedy's willingness to flout the law in a good cause. So I think it'd be worth, you know, seeing if anybody could come up with another case. My, my mother tells, talks about that night and how there was no place for Ralph Bunch to say, stay because mm -hmm. the no hotel would take him in. So he stayed at my mother and father's house and she describes, you know, creating a bed for him on the third floor. And all night long, um, the house was pelted with um, bananas and oranges and all sorts of balls that were and scream and people screaming at them all night long because there was such anger that this white couple would have an African American uh, spend the night with them in their home. So, I mean, they're you know, in, so what to say? So my father obviously was aware early on they were. They were, they were newlyweds and they were, uh, saw the, uh, the, the problems with integration early on in 1950. Yeah, just by having uh, this esteemed Nobel Prize winning yeah. guest in your home who happens to be African-American. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. It's, um... Um, so, you know, the, uh, we heard earlier about how my father did speak at the city club in 1968. What, what do you think of um, the significance of that speech so many years ago, 50, 53 years ago? Oh, well, it, it's, sadly, it is so, so relevant um, today and, and we're lucky to have it. And as, as Dom pointed out, it's been you know out there um, recently as we uh, experience uh, violence in all forms in our country. Um, I mean, we all are aware of the constant reminders of mass shootings. Um, and there was a recent piece that said, since 1966, there have been around 1400 mass shootings. There have been 2 million deaths by gun violence, just you know, singularly. So that's a huge problem. And he addresses that right out front because of course that speech is the day after Martin Luther King is assassinated. Um, and so just gun violence and your father supported um, reform, uh, you know, restrictions on gun sales he was in, in, as a senator. Um, so there's that issue. But to me, what's, um, I mean, he just talks about the violence in our culture and he talks about it in a way to just raise awareness and appeal to his fellow citizens, right, to face this and to begin to orient ourselves in a way that can address it. Uh, and one part of the speech, again, which he was so familiar with since he he went 
to his cities. He talked to youth. He talked to people living in terrible conditions. Um, and in the speech, he talks about the violence of institutions, the violence of schools with no books, the violence of homes with no heat, um, you know, that kind of violence. And that he understood then when the country had really been reeling over these urban uprisings and the police response, he under, the root cause of violence is those, there are those conditions, right? Um, so it really, but, but the tone of it is so what I had come to see in him uh, throughout his public life is this appeal to people, uh, really talking about our common humanity, uh, our common bonds, um, and reminding us, and I think that, that we're just here for a short time, right? Even if we have a long life. And, you know, we should live in a way that everyone can enjoy um, uh, the opportunities and that we don't build our lives on the misfortunes of others. I mean, there are so many thoughtful points that I think it's the kind of speech that today would just help people think about this and then think about what they can do as individuals and in their community to begin to, um, to turn that around. I think, I think I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, the, the violence of institutions is so critical to think mm -hmm. and understand how, how much, uh, if we don't have good schools, if we don't provide a decent job where people are treated well and paid well and have the good benefits. No, so many people. That can be. And, and when you think the violence, I mean, the violence that, and he talks about this in another speech at Berkeley, is the violence that public figures uh, encourage as a way of political opportunism. You know, when we, what we've gone through this, you know, in January, I mean, that that's tolerated by elected officials. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, and he acted, you know, that your father has so many amazing speeches and he's quoted and he should be quoted. But to me, what I learned in this book, he was an activist. You know, it's really, he, he, he acted on what he said and, and what he did and how he tried to meet these challenges really shows that it's com complicated, it's hard work, and it's essential. Yeah, thank you. That is for sure. Um, we could go on about that. But we talked, you know, last week about a new um, documentary that's out about my father's uh, visit to the University of Mississippi in 1966. And I hope anybody who's watching this program will get to see that extraordinary visit. Um, could you talk about what you found. I, I realized you just got to see that, I think last week and what you learned <laughs> looking at this was, stuff. At this it time. was, you know, it, it, yes. I mean, thanks to you uh, who brought it to my attention. I had not seen it and I, I think it's a fairly new documentary, but it is fantastic. And it, um, some background for the, for the uh, audience, you know, in 1962, uh, Robert Kennedy as attorney general and his brother, president, uh, had to enforce a desegregation ruling uh, that required that James Meredith be admitted to the University of Mississippi. I mean, this was mandated by the courts. And again, this theme of violence, I mean, the governor uh, defied, was prepared to defy the law. He encouraged resistance. Uh, and, you know, the president and the attorney general felt the law needed to be enforced. And they really tried to take every... Um, prepare uh, to, to make sure that this student, James Meredith, was admitted to the university uh, safely. And of course, there were riots on the campus. Um, people came from other parts of the state. Uh, and it, it's just bedlam. Uh, the marshals protected uh, Meredith and uh, but put themselves on the line. Two people, two people were killed during the riots. And Ultimately, the army came in. So it was just, uh, and Meredith enrolled and the University of Mississippi was desegregated. And um, so uh, the Kennedys, as you can imagine, <laughs> were just uh, hated by many white Mississippians. Uh, and the violent reaction to James Meredith, uh, it was a violent place. I mean, Mississippi and civil rights, just uh, no law enforcement and, um, and so when Robert Kennedy gets an invitation in 1966 by law students at the University of Mississippi to go and address uh, the students, uh, he was surprised and he kind of wondered, you know, how he'd be received, but they invited him. So he 
and Ethel went with him. They went. And, you know, they really, uh, it took tremendous courage to go there, um, not knowing. It's just four years previously, um, still tremendous resentment and resistance in Mississippi to desegregation and to um, enforcement of the, the, the laws. Um, and so he went. And I, I knew that, and I'd read a transcript of his speech, which was a terrific speech, which I recommend. But what I learned from the film is that the law students sort of had an agenda. Um, they, um, Ross Barnett, the governor who resisted uh, and really was, was terrible uh, in 1962, was gonna run for governor again. He couldn't have a consecutive uh, term. And, uh, and he was ahead in the polls, he was leading. So they wanted, they knew the backstory to the dealings between Morris Barnett and the Kennedys, and they wanted to bring that to public attention. So they invite the former attorney general to come. And again, Robert Kennedy gives an amazing speech where he really looks to them as young people, and not just as Southerners, as Americans who share the challenges and problems that the whole country shares around racial equality, around um, racial justice. Pat, yeah. Could I just interrupt here because when these students invite Robert Kennedy, they do it surreptitiously. They put him on a list with lots of concerns. Yes, exactly. Because, because they knew that the, you know, the, the powers that be in Mississippi wouldn't want him invited. In fact, when the university learned that he was invited, they asked him to be disinvited. And the uh, dean of the law school said Very he, would, good point. he would resign and five professors would resign if Robert Kennedy was disinvited. And then it went to the uh, regents and there was a five to four vote by the regents as to whether he could vote, speak or not. And the law student, the law professors, the dean said, if you disinvite Robert Kennedy, you will lose the ability to be part of the, I think it's the NCAA, the, um, the football. Right, sports, yes. <laughs> the sports, you won't be able to play football, which they thought, they knew it was might have been a false threat, but it was a threat that they were trying right to say, we're going to lose your ability to play football, and which might have helped get that last fifth vote. So there That's, was really yeah. a huge story about even allowing my father on the campus. There was such resistance to even having him on the campus. I think that's another part of the story. That's very and important. And the bravery of the law professors and the dean of the law school to fight for the students' right to hear um, my father speak. I thought that was yeah. an important part of the story. That's a really important point. And, and also, they were probably thinking back to 62. The University of Mississippi, after that episode, people resigned. They lost faculty. I mean, their reputation went down, but that's really important. And they also had a speaker's ban that the, the students got around, but that's critically important. And it also affirmed what your father saw is that he's encouraging these, these forces in Mississippi, right? These progressive forces um, to uh, really give, more than encouraging them, I think his coming and their ability to do that was a real breakthrough. And that is a very important part of the story. Um, and in the course of the, and another, when, when he's speaking, he gives a speech and they ask him whose fault was the riot and your father would not single anyone out. I thought that was so classy because it's easy to say that it's that guy, but it was much more than just Barnett. So he, you know, he, they went back and forth and sort of played with it. And then they finally just, he said, just ask me about me. <laughs> and when they did, he was able to tell about the exchanges with Ross Barnett which are ridiculous. I mean, Ross Barnett wanted to stage like the federal government coming in with guns and then he'd let Meredith in because it would show that there was an invasion. Said, no, what are I gonna do? And the audience is guffawing at this. 6,000 people are seeing what, what a clown this governor had been as well as dangerous. And he got a standing ovation as you, you see in the film, it's, it's really magnificent. And Ross Barnett lost by a landslide when he ran for governor in 1967. So it really is a wonderful convergence of things that um, that underscore, you know, his um, connecting up again with these with these forces. And yeah, those law students were were terrific, and we see them in the film. It's great. Totally recommend the film. Thank you for for telling. One other, just another footnote. Two other footnotes to that story. One um, in 1962, when President Kennedy needed to call the military into the army. The army was in, in Memphis. 
-hmm. And it took so long for the army to make it to Mississippi yes. that you know, three or four weeks later, when they had the crisis in Cuba, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the army said that they could be precise in <laughs> he didn't trust them. Because he no. said, if you can't get from Memphis to Mississippi, how are you going to be precise <laughs> get to Cuba? So that that experience three weeks before um, at the, the University of Mississippi made him doubt the Army's word. That was number one. And number two, at the University of Mississippi, Faulkner's had two nephews. And one was head of the National Guard trying to protect the students, and the other was leading the mob against um, against the National Guard. So it, I, I think no it's a great idea. story about how one family can be very conflicted. Yes, no, that, but that's that's amazing. That's really. Um, where did you come up with the title Justice Rising? You know, it's sort of out of my head, but now I now that I finished the book, I know what it means. It's this moment is a convergence. Okay, I mean, you have the, the, the black freedom struggle that with the sit-ins really opens up and engages the country. Um, you have youth activism uh, that really in response to the sit-ins and, and, and really civic engagement on a scale not seen since the New Deal era, you know, coming out of the Cold War period. The Kennedy administration, which is so responsive. I mean, the Kennedy, both J John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, again, a surprise in my research, they came into the administration understanding the problem. Uh, Thurgood Marshall had met with JFK while he was running. He said he, he knew the whole thing. The question is, and we see this today, you know what you'd like to do. You have to function through a political framework. And you had Southern Democrats, you know, so them, they're in the mix. And I think this convergence uh, in that early 60s of all these forces, Dr. King, and the common connector is, commitment to justice. I mean, the Kennedy administration not only responded to the demands of the civil rights movement, they responded to the opportunities created by the civil rights movement uh, to move this country forward. And um, so, and again, it's sort of, it's fleeting in terms of that period, but the legacy is rich. And of course it includes the civil rights legislation of 64 and 65, which came out of the Kennedy administration. So yeah, I, I think the title, I'm happy with it even more so than when I, thought of it. <laughs> Great. And finally, I mean, why do people read books? They, I think it speaks to their need today. And so how do you think mm -hmm. the book speaks to a current condition? Oh, the, the book ends. I mean, your father as a senator from New York, he came into the Senate in 1965. That was the year of the Watts uprising. Uh, which he understood, having paid so close attention to conditions, uh, was a response to conditions, horrible conditions in these urban areas. And so he was a voice through this period, insisting that attention be paid. You know, when people called for law and order after Watts, he said, how can you ask Negroes to obey the law when the law is used against them? And he didn't just mean policing, he meant landlords that cheated them, merchants that cheated them, not having full participation. Um, and as we go through this period, Robert Kennedy's work aligns with Dr. King's in looking at the problems of poverty across the board, Indian communities, Appalachia, but particularly in urban areas. Um, and they really push for bringing resources and government funding and public concern about redressing conditions that were decades in the making. Sadly, I mean, we don't know what would have happened, but the assassination silenced two of the strongest voices for that. And what we saw in response to the urban uprising this period was the militarization of policing, increased incarceration. So we see a line from that era to where we are today. Um, and I think what the book does is show that what it takes to first see the issues, confront the issues and work to change them. It's complex, it's hard work, it's long haul. But I think there's really hope in understanding from this period um, what people like your father and King and others understood and the role of everybody. Uh, but he really looked to college students coming out and really devoting themselves to public service and making the kinds of changes that are 
across the board, not just one thing, but many things. Um, so I really think it, it, it sort of picks up and will help people kind of get a historical perspective as well as a sense of uh, what it takes to really uh, work for change and and secure it to, to, to a significant extent. You know, it's a generational shifting. Each generation has to pick up, face our history and, um, and work to move us forward. Oh, thank you, Pat. Well, you've done a terrific job and uh, it's been a great conversation and really look forward to reading the rest of your book. Um, terrific. I don't, I'm, I don't know if there are any questions uh, that have come from the people who are listening today. Okay. Can you see in the chat? Uh, well, can you see it? It's not, I can read it. No, I don't see any. But okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Yes. You see it? Audience question. I would okay. be curious to hear both Dr. Sullivan and Kathleen Kennedy, Kennedy Townsend describe what social issues they think Senator Kennedy would champion today. Yes. Um, well, Pat, do you want to go ahead? Well, I think you've just talked about what you think he would yeah. champion. I think what what the youth would say. Do you want to add anything to that, Pat? Um, yeah, I, I think that the challenges we still deal with in decent public education, uh, problems of poverty, of disenfranchisement. I mean, what's happening around voting? Wouldn't he be right on that? Uh, today in the John Lewis Act, and 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 he'd be championing us to um, to really be involved and and go beyond protest to really uh, working in our communities and uh, states uh, to redress these issues, bring them to public attention. Um, so I think he's he's very timely. But what do you, what do you think, Kathleen? Yes, I th I think that's a very good point. I think also um, pay, you know, pay and benefits. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, the minimum wage hasn't risen in 15 years, and it's just, you know, I think it's seven dollars an hour. It's just terrible, and we have billionaires who are making enormous amounts of money, and uh, people don't ha have a f fair wage. I think you have to raise the wages. You have to get health benefits, uh, retirement benefits. Half of Americans don't have anything saved for retirement. It's it's just hor horrific. Um, so I think we have to have a really different relationship between workers and um, employers. And we have to have a much uh, d different way that we see it, the people who work in our country. Um, we have to have make sure, you know, we're the only uh, developed country that doesn't give um, time off for uh, women who have children. I mean, no paid leave. This is, again, horrendous. For, if we believe in families, we have to have uh, time off for women. Women have suffered tr tremendously um, mm -hmm. through COVID, um, taking care of their, their children, taking care of their parents. So I think there really has to be a new social contract so that um, mm -hmm. families can be supported. Mm -hmm. I think education is, is obviously important, but that's not the only way that we're going to go mm -hmm. forward. We also have to change the conditions of work. Work and, and jobs, that was your father's central thing, that having work and having good work to do and, and um, you know, being compensated. Yeah. I mean, that's a critical, critical thing. Okay, yes. And then it says, a question for Kathleen. Many books and documentaries have been made about the Kennedy family. What makes Justice Rising resonate with for you? Well, thank you. Um, First of all, I've learned a number of things about my father in, um, in Justice Rising. Uh, number one, I knew that he had covered the war um, in 1948 in Israel and pa Palestine, uh, but I didn't know that he had been captured by the Israeli security forces, blindfolded and gagged uh, and tied up. So that was news to me. He had never told me that. We had just known that he had had covered it. And so that was interesting. And I was kind of shocked that I had never known that. And Pat had found that out because she had actually read his diaries, which were in the Kennedy Library. So that was news. The second thing that I learned, uh, which was interesting to me, 
is how often my father went on foreign trips for weeks at a time, leaving my mother to take care of the children. I mean, my mother had help, but he went away uh, for about eight weeks with my uncle Jack and my aunt Pat to the Middle East, to the Far East, visiting Vietnam, which he understood very clearly uh, the French were losing and that the, that war was about colonialism. I mean, he visited many other countries at that time. Uh, and then he went to R Russia with Justice Douglas for another eight weeks. And I'm just thinking, my poor mother is home alone. I mean, she had help, but he just kept leaving. And I don't think I realized how often he just would leave for long periods of time. So I, I was feeling more uh, sympathy for my mother in reading those parts. It's <laughs> probably not the answer you expected, but it was really <laughs> to me. Okay, are there any other questions? Let's see. Um, what's, another question, with so much speech happening all the time on social media, on news channels, can any one speech today have the kind of impact the speech, mm. speeches seem to have in the civil rights era? Well, the biggest speech, I don't think that my father's speech at the city club had that much impact at that time. I think that speech that my father gave at the city club has impact today because it gets replicated so much, so many times on in social media, in on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, it's you know if you watch MSNBC, it's it's quoted a great deal. Um, and Martin Luther's King's speech was copied a lot because it was given to a crowd of you know huge numbers. On the um, on the mall, so I think it, it those kind of speeches, because they're beautiful and speaks to a large number, um, can can be moving. I mean, I I think that you know President Reagan's speech, tear down that wall, we hear again. So I think if you have a really compelling words, uh, mm -hmm. they can be listened to. I just don't think that um, the People focus as much on language today as they did years ago, and they fo focus more on images. That would be my my sense. Mm -hmm. But maybe Pat has a different view. Yeah, you know, I think in a way, I think your point about the Cleveland speech, um, that these speeches are important for people who come later in a way, because people are living this drama. I mean, I wonder in the midst of that, you know, people heard it and like his speech the night King was assassinated, tremendous impact in that place and moment. Um, but I, it's a great question because again, what struck me, I mean, you know, Senator Kennedy's speech in South Africa in Cape Town, it had such a big impact on the people there, you know, encouraging the students who invited him there in 1966. And Ripple of Hope is something that's repeated now, you know, I mean, it's a quote from that speech. Um, so I think, I mean, I wonder if people take time to craft these kinds of speeches now. I think that would be um, interesting to think about, you know, because um, as you say, uh, the questioner says that the social media, everything's so abbreviated and um, that speeches take time. And so I think, you know, but, but they're powerful and, and, they have, and they have power across time as we've, as we've seen uh, with our discussion today. Oh, and I think, I mean, to be blunt, Trump's language lasts. I mean, you hear, you know, what he is saying, and you can still remember what he said when he started his campaign about Mexicans. So, you know, it depends how often you repeat it and how blunt it is and, uh, you know, how memorable it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, his, his message clearly got through. And the question is, you know, can... Can other people be as have as gripping a message mm -hmm. in that format? Yeah. So that is a, that is a, a challenge. Um, I mean, I think Biden's Build Back Better. You know, that's that can rip up, that can trip uh, that can come off your tongue pretty easily. And it's a it's mm -hmm. a good it's mm -hmm. a good idea. Mm -hmm. That's it. I think. 
But I do think a lot of my father's speeches get repeated um, more now and through the last 50 years than they than they were definitely necessary than they were mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought that yeah. that, that they uh, they've grown. <laughs> the wisdom of them has been more appreciated as the, as the time yeah. has passed. Mm -hmm. And they speak to us. I mean, they speak to us in a positive way, which I think people yeah. people respond to. Um, so right. she's, you know, there's a question here about how Senator Kennedy changed over his career from being the enforcer to visionary bridge builder. He became during the presidential campaign. Um, yeah, I mean, the enforcer, the, maybe that means the rackets. I think there are so many myths about Robert Kennedy that have exploded as I wrote this book. But but his Senate years, I mean, one thing, even before the Senate, one thing I want to mention, uh, which folds over into the Senate, um, I mean, he, he worked on so many levels. And when he was in Washington, well, he lived in Washington as you know throughout these the 60s, um, he um, was active locally. I mean, he... he uh, worked with the students in Washington, D.C., uh, getting jobs programs going, um, building a playground in this you know, area that was just so desolate in terms of recreational facilities. There was a pool at Dunbar High School that had been closed for nine years. He raised money as when he was attorney general and got it re restored and reopened because Southern Democrats controlled the budget for um, Washington. And one of my great finds, I mean, about Kathleen's earlier question is when he left as attorney general, 3,500 high school students gathered in the stadium behind Cardoza High School in Washington to serenade him and bless him and just praise him for all that he had done for them and how they he had made them feel. I mean, it just, so he was doing things in his own way. Uh, also Prince Edward, Edward County. Um, so the notion of a bridge builder, I mean, that's different than bridge, but bridge builder, yeah. I mean, he used his position uh, as a Senator to, um, first he held hearings on conditions in urban areas and used that as a platform to educate people. I mean, there's a tremendous moment in the book where he has Martin Luther King who's testifying and Senator Kennedy and Martin Luther King are just in a soliloquy about the poverty in urban areas, the, 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 the despair and the failure of their fellow countrymen to see this at a time when the war on poverty is being, you know, decreased to, to support the war in Vietnam. Um, he did field hearings in migrant labor camps on Indian reservations in the Delta of Mississippi in West Virginia. And again, he's going, he's seeing, he's listening, and he's getting information that is shared um, with other citizens. So I think Bridge Builder is just crossing all of these, you know, not, not barriers, but communities and elevating the issues and, and just appealing to Americans as citizens and um, who should care, you know, about, about these, these conditions and, uh, and the government that should be, and not just the government, but private, all the rest. So, um, so he did, you know, as a senator, he had room to do that because as a senator, he was sort of on his own and he was a public figure in his own right. And he really moved into that ready um, to, to, uh, to act in that way. And the presidential campaign, uh, yes, I mean, that's the, the ultimate, right? I mean, when he ran for president, it was trusting that what he was caring about and talking about that the country across racial, ethnic, urban rural barriers also cared about. And, and he really, that campaign 10 weeks long, it was amazing. I mean, it, it, he, he was everywhere and the energy and the passion uh, and the promise uh, is, uh, is really hard to end my book. I mean, the way it, it ends because it, it was so real to be writing about that. And I have to say one of his supporters was Muhammad Ali who said, Senator Kennedy, I mean, Robert Kennedy will have the support of youth, black and white, because he tells the truth about race, religion, and the war in Vietnam. I mean, you know, he just, he told the truth and people trusted him. And um, so I think the presidential campaign is sort of the culmination of his public life, of really 
doing that and now doing it on a national platform running for president of the United States, which was such a, um, a gift to us uh, to do that. So, oh, then there's another question on Kathleen. This is for both of us. Well, there's two other. <laughs> Stephanie Janoski, Jansky has lots of questions. I can see. Um, there's the question: Do you what do you think would have flavored comprehensive immigration reform? Well, we didn't talk about the fact that they had the immigration bill. Um, President Kennedy and my father, and then I think it, it was passed eventually under Lyndon Johnson, had extraordinary immigration reform in the 60s, which changed the immigration of the United States. When I, when we were all growing up, it was immigration was largely European and mm -hmm. they changed it. So we would have immigration from South America, from Africa and from Asia. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we have a totally different look in the United States today than we did uh, 60 mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I remember uh, President Kennedy uh, wrote a book called uh, A Nation of Immigrants. And my great-grandfather, uh, John Fitzgerald, which many of you did not know was a congressman and then he became the mayor of Boston, uh, he was in Congress for only six years. But he did one thing, which is to say that you didn't have to speak English in order to vote because he wanted the Italian vote. And um, so anyway, but he so he made sure that Italians could vote in Boston. Anyway, I think he would, of course, wanted a, a immigration reform. But my mother has always said to us, don't put into your mouth the things you want and just think your father would have wanted it. So we're, we have to be very careful to make sure that uh, we just don't say what we want and say, Dad said this. <laughs> but but based on that he, that he did push for immigration reform uh, in the 60s, I think he would want it again today. And, and you know, one, I, I, I agree. And I, and I think a, a point also about when he, when he was active, the Voting Rights Act, here's something, I mean, there's so much I learned that I didn't know, but the Voting Rights Act, again, he's Senator from New York. So that's written, is going through. He adds an amendment that removes the requirement in New York state that you had to be able to speak English, right? To pass a literacy test. So he, he got that removed and it was really targeting uh, Puerto Ricans who had come to New York City. So uh, yeah, I agree. I think he'd, he'd be active in, in some inclusive way right now. It's a big oh, challenge. That's funny. So that's like my great, great grandfather, same deal. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Exactly. Now, here's one, Kathleen, about um, speak to the display of Senator Kennedy's courage and speaking speaking in Indianapolis on the evening of Dr. King's assassination and actually informing the large minority crowd of the tragedy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, as you, as we both know, when he arrived in Indianapolis, um, he was told that Mark, Dr. King had been killed and he was advised by Mayor Richard Luger not to go to where he was supposed to speak, which was in the inner city. And he was told it would not be safe, which there was good reason to believe that because there were riots in other parts of the country breaking out over Dr. King's death. As you know, and there were huge riots here in Washington, DC. Um, but he thought that his whole campaign was devoted to, um, as we talked about earlier, building bridges and reaching out to people who are in pain. When he went into the, into the inner city, the chief of police bro broke away, would not go with him. That's how afraid the police were to go into the inner city. Mm -hmm. That doesn't give you any pause as to what's going on in, our, in the country at that time. So he went in without any police protection. He went in against the uh, advice of the mayor and he told the crowd that Dr. King had been killed. So it, just in terms of physical courage, uh, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, and then, as you know, he gave that stunning speech. And, you know, and then he quoted the Greeks, Aeschylus. Um, and he, 
you know, ended with to tame, what did the Greeks, ancient Greek speech ask for? To tame the savageness of man, to make gentle the life of the world. So he, he never spoke down to an audience, but lifted everybody up, I think, which is what he mm-hmm. believed a politician and a leader should do. And as a result, Indianapolis was one of the few cities in the country that did not break into violence. Mm-hmm. And it shows what a leader can do. They can, they can lift people up and they can, and they can encourage peace. Mm-hmm. So that's what you see from what he did in Indianapolis. And it really shows what good, great leadership can accomplish. No, and, and, and your other word, courage, you know, but um, writing about that night, you know, I, I spoke with Frank Mankiewicz, who was with him um, when they flew in, and you described it so well, Kathleen, but, but one thing about the police chief, when they landed in Indianapolis, and as you say, he heard that Dr. King had died, he um, got off the plane and the police chief said, you can't go, you won't be safe. And he said, I and my wife and my children could go to that community, lie down in the street and be perfectly safe. If you can't, that's your problem. (laughs) So I think, you know, he knew he connected and, and, and he, um, and of course, as as Jim Lewis organized that meeting and, um, and he sent your mother back to the hotel, I mean, off to the hotel, but, but he went and it really, for people who haven't read that speech, it's short, but it is, and it's just totally, he told, you know, Frank Mankiewicz told me that when they were flying on the plane from Muncie to Indianapolis, um, they had heard when they got on the plane that Dr. King had been shot. And then when they landed, they found out. But so when they landed, he, they talked about Dr. King on the short flight. And when they landed, he told Mankiewicz, just, you know, write me something. And so Mankiewicz got on the press bus and uh, Senator Kennedy got in the car. And as you say, the police abandoned the bus when it got close to the crossing over into the black part of Indianapolis. So the bus driver got lost. And by the time he got to the park, your father was up on that flatbed truck and he had started speaking and he just spoke um, just from his heart. And um, and as you say, the, he had, I mean, John Lewis in his autobiography describes hearing it and being there and how he connected with the crowd who was just devastated. I mean, the, that news was just um, so, uh, and then of course the next day he goes, to Cleveland, but he canceled all of his um, campaign appearances except for that next day so he could give the wonderful speech on the mindless menace of violence, important speech, until Dr. King was um, was buried. And he and Ethel went to Atlanta for the uh, funeral and he marched from the church to Morehouse University. Someone said the first march that Robert Kennedy was in, I mean, uh, the Civil Rights March taking Dr. King um, to Morehouse. So yeah, Indianapolis is um, is is a real a real moment and shows so much about him and who he was and how he inspired more than inspired people, comforted people, um, and helped them to you know to absorb this moment in a way that um, didn't break out into violence. Yeah. Then we have another question. <laughs> this people, you know, what would he have fought for universal health care? Again, um, so I, I would think so. Again, this is, you know, putting our own views, but I think he would have. Um, one of the things that's very interesting is that he was very angry at the tobacco companies early on. Um, for what they were doing and with um, cigarette smoking and how that led to cancer. So he was early on uh, on that issue, which I thought I, I didn't know, but I, I, in looking through my notes um, the other night, I, I saw the speech that he, he was decrying what the tobacco companies were. So he was very early on that issue and, and, big on the importance of healthcare. So he saw things early on. And I think that's important to note um, because he listened and he, he saw what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think, you know, the issue about whether he was a tough prosecutor, I mean, the, the, the reason he was so angry with the corruption is because it hurt people. I mean, if, if, you're, mm -hmm. if your bosses are corrupt, you're not getting paid well, you're not mm -hmm. getting a fair shot at, you know, promotions, and that's unjust, unjust. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, you know, there's a different view of, where he was in 65 and 66 and 67 than he was in 55, 55, 56, 57. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's really true because in both cases, mm -hmm. he was for the underdog. He was for the person who was being tossed around. And sometimes they were tossed around by corrupt bosses and sometimes they were tossed around by a corrupt system. But in both cases, there, people were not being treated fairly. Um, and he didn't like that at all. And anyway, and so I think there's a there's a, there's an understanding that you can't. America was not the United States was not allowed was should not be unjust to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I and sometimes you get that through the get changed through the, the legal system, and sometimes you have to change the legal system. And he did change. I mean, in the criminal justice system. When he was going after the mob, um, J. Edgar Hoover would, would, didn't want to admit that there was such a thing as the mob, right. just so you know, and because he didn't want his FBI agents to have to go after them. And it was my father who forced him to, to recognize there was a mob. So just it's important, I think, uh, um, to understand that. No, I I, that's I, not what Pat focuses on in this book. But yes, I do. I do focus on that. But I think that's a critical. No, but I do focus on that, Kathleen. And it's exactly as you oh, say. Okay. I mean, I write about his, oh. no, his public life, and that's exactly correct. And he established a very strong relationship with Walter Luther during this period. So if he's investigating rackets in the labor unions, yeah. I mean, you know, he, um, he, you know, and it was he got tremendous press. Yes, and, you, uh, you write about how. When, yes, I think that's a really good point because you write about how the, the the Republicans wanted him to go after Walter Ruther. Exactly, and go Walter so knows. Walter Ruther, the UAW comes in and says, look at everything. And then he, they said, well, why don't you go out and see how the workers are treated in the plant? And they don't believe that my father would ever go out. And the next night, my father goes out to Wisconsin looks mm -hmm. at the plant, sees how the workers are treated, is horrified, and then takes <laughs> and then yep, says, exactly. this is outrageous. And, and, so, and it's a wonderful story about how my father, to the great surprise of the UAW, takes on the plant managers. And uh, it was the Kroger. It was the Kroger plant. Yes. K-R-O-E-G-R. And I, I know that because I've always had this feeling about Kroger, that they weren't a good company. <laughs> and when I read that, I thought, that's why I've always had this feeling, bad feeling about Kroger. I knew I, I was always wondered why I had a bad feeling about them. That's uh, That was the story that, so I must, but as a child, had a feeling that they weren't really that great. Anyway, thank you for, for reminding me. Thank you. Thank you both, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, Dr. Patricia Sullivan. Um, what a wonderful conversation, um, Kathleen. Such a such a thing for you to be leading this conversation about your dad and his legacy. And um, and Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for your work in authoring this book. I know that um, it's just available today, and many people are very much looking forward to reading it. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and Kathleen, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kathleen. I'm glad it was. And, Launch was great to be in Cleveland. It's a great place. Yes. Next, next time back Tim in Cleveland. I was waiting for the Tim Hagen shout out. Okay, good. I'll text him after this. Thank you so much, both okay, of you. Okay, you're getting it. You're getting it. Of course. <laughs> okay, and let me thank, and I want to thank our audience as well. Thank you for joining us for our forum on Senator Robert F. Kennedy's leadership in relation to the civil rights movement and racial turmoil of the 1960s. You've heard from, as I said, Dr. Patricia Sullivan, the William Arthur Ferry Professor of History at the University of Southern California and author of the new book, Justice Rising, Robert Kennedy's America in Black and White. Dr. Sullivan was interviewed by Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, oldest daughter of Ethel and Robert F. Kennedy and the former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. Our forum today is sponsored by the law firm Nager, Romaine and Schneeberg LPA. 
Today's forum is also part of our Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by and in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful for your support. All City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week thanks to a generous support from Bank of America, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting the City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or if you want, this is super easy, just text the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582. And then there's a few quick steps to make your contribution. We thank you in advance. Special thanks as well to City Club member James Lyon. Our forum today is really a result of his efforts. We're very grateful, James, for your engagement. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay close in your hearts, my friends. We will be close in person soon, and we cannot wait. Keep your eye on your email for more information about that. For right now, our forum is adjourned. Have a great day.